What if our theology could get up from our armchairs and move into our world? That would be something worth paying attention to. This is the Armchair Anabaptist Podcast. Lay your guns down, down on the floor. There ain't no good in those guns anymore. Shake my head and let me kiss your cheek. And let our friendship be sweet. because Mennonites have usually found that the way to faithfulness is to separate from others. You know, and eventually, if only I am here, then at least I'll agree with myself. And I don't think that we can say we love someone and then shoot them. That doesn't make sense. I always tell folks that, you know, look, if you're in a debate and winning the debate becomes more important than reflecting love towards the person you're debating, then do the kingdom of God a great service and shut up. How do we encourage people to see nonviolence as something more than a position about war? Because we're not just sitting around doing podcasts and theology. We're actually trying to live our lives as Christians. This is a reckoning between you and me. The writing of all wrongs as we eat and as we drink. You're listening to the Armchair Anabaptist. This is episode number two, The Controversy Part Two. I'm Kevin Weeb. And I'm Jesse Petter. And we are your hosts. We are going to be jumping into this idea once again of the controversy that can surround pacifism. On our first episode, we had the chance to talk about why this is such a controversial topic. We chatted with people about what makes this controversial, why it's a hot button issue in the church, and why it's important for us to be talking about it. Today, we continue those conversations by looking at what are some of the challenges that we face as a Christian community as we seek to engage with this idea of peace. Once again, we have an excellent panel of guests that we will be speaking to about this very important topic. There is Betty Priest, Brian Zond, Dr. Leighton Friesen. Uh, last time we just said Leighton Friesen. Uh, Leighton is the was the conference pastor for the Evangelical Mennonite Conference. He was at the time of the interview. Um, that familiarity, I suppose, um, uh, left us a little bit less professional, perhaps, than we should have been with our friend Leighton. Sorry, Leighton. Uh, Dr. Leighton Friesen, who is also now the academic dean at Steinbeck Bible College. And we'll also be um, hearing from Dr. Terry Hebert, who is the president of Steinbeck Bible College. And also, um, we had a chance to talk to Ronald J. Sider, Dr. Ronald J. Sider, uh, prior to his passing last year. So that's our panel of guests that we will be hearing from today. We're going to start off by listening to Betty Priest. Betty is the founder of a mediation company called Credence & Co. and the author of The Space Between Us. She's also an instructor in the Conflict Management Program at Conrad Grable University College. We asked Betty, what are some of the biggest challenges in living out this idea of loving our enemies? What makes this so difficult for us to actually do? What makes this hard for us to do, I think, is um, that, in fact, so many of us do not love ourselves. We hate the other because we see something in the other that reminds us of ourselves. In fact, we know that the more we dislike something in ourselves, 
the more that we will find that source of our dislike in the other person. And I encounter so many Christians who, so many Christians who have a deep, deep seated distaste for themselves. Like it's, I see this, like if we're really honest with ourselves, so many people across the world, including people of faith, have a deep seated distaste for themselves. And so I sometimes, you know, I think when we look at this deep seated distaste for ourselves, Sometimes we, f- we all have this need to be loved and we all have a need to belong. And so what we end up doing is we fill our deep longing to be loved by purchasing new things, by taking exotic holidays, chasing new experiences, rather than really settling in with ourselves and discovering that we are beautiful, beautiful and broken. You know, I'm thinking about a, a, um, a podcast that I was listening to where the person described um, sort of a spiritual leader coming up to a person and said, you are deeply beloved exactly as you are. And there's room for improvement, right? <laughs> both of these things are both true at the very same time. And so because we have such a hard time loving ourselves, there's not a lot of space left to love the other. And so there's something about this dynamic of distaste for ourselves, which we don't, we know we have this distaste. So we well, it's part of the reason we make all these assumptions. I have this distaste for myself. I feel badly about myself. Therefore, others must feel badly about me. Therefore, they're bad people. And I push my distaste for myself onto the others and make them responsible for my distaste for myself. And so if we really want to love our neighbors, we do need to love ourselves. It's These two things are one love. In the Gospels, we have this passage uh, to love you, you know, what's the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. If you look at the grammatical construction of this passage, it is to love your neighbor as though the neighbor is oneself. And to love God is to love one's neighbor as if the neighbor is oneself. This, These three, love for God, love for neighbor, love for self, it is one love. And we can't do, we can't pick and choose. If you want to do one and not the other two, it's not going to work. If you want to do this one and not these other two, it's not going to work. We have to find a way of leaning into this one great love. It's one love. And it has multiple faces, multiple expressions for self, for neighbor, for God. I think if we could do that, we would find ourselves able to love our neighbors more effectively. Brian Zond is the founding pastor of Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri, and he's the author of 10 books. His most recent book is When Everything's on Fire. We asked Pastor Brian, what makes this thing about loving our enemies so very difficult for us to actually do? Uh, Why is this such a difficult thing practically? You know, it's all well and good to talk about it in theory, but on the ground, when we're living it out, why is this so hard? Well, because we live in a world that is completely arranged around what I would describe as an axis of power enforced by violence. So consider this. This, this is how the Bible tells uh, one of its origin. This is the story that, that is given to us in the Bible to help understand our origins. I'll put it that way. So in the beginning, God creates heaven and earth, animals, pinnacle of God's creation is beings in his own image. Uh, Adam and Eve, Adam from the Adama. Adam means humankind, okay, humankind. 
Uh, Adam from Adama means soil. So human from the humus. And Eva, Eve, Eva means life. Humankind and life, they have two children, Cain and Abel. Cain is a tiller of the soil. Abel is a hunter. He's a hunter-gatherer. Cain is harnessing agriculture. Abel is following the flocks. Anthropologists tell us that with the rise of agriculture, uh, there was a fundamental change. And now land was was now could be owned, and necessarily for agriculture, there's some sort of you know you have fences and borders and boundaries, and anthropology tells us that the early agriculturists came into a lot of conflict with the traditional hunter gatherers, the, the more uh, nomadic life. And so we have a story of conflict between Cain and Abel. What happens? Cain kills Abel. First he lies to himself about it. Then he lies to God about it. The question is, where is your brother? And he says, I I mean, how would I know? Am Am I my brother's keeper? Am I supposed to just, you know, take care of him? I hope we know the answer to that question by now. Uh, But he lies to himself and God about it. And then what happens? There's a mark put on him, but it's it's a mark of essentially mercy because he's exiled, moving further away from Eden. But um, he says, as my punishment's too great, you know, people will take vengeance on me. And he God says, no, I put a mark on you and whoever kills you, uh, you know, their, their vengeance will be sevenfold. And what does he do? He moves east of Eden. And what does he do? He founds the first city. What's the message here? Our civilizations come from the idea that we get by lying to ourselves and telling ourselves that our brother is not really our brother. Our brother is other. Our other is enemy. And we have to know they have to be killed. We have to go to war against them. We just have to. And that's the foundation for our society. Um, And then it gets exponentially worse. Seven generations later, you have this guy named Lamech who says, I have killed a man for wounded me. I've slain a young man for striking me. If Cain's vengeance is sevenfold, then Lamech's vengeance is 70 times seven. I think everybody's used to hearing 70 times seven associated with Jesus and forgiveness in the Gospels. But the first 70 times seven is in Genesis, and it has to do with vengeance. And so... Um, Lethal violence employed against the other that we call enemy is the very foundation of our society. Uh, it's just it's just how it's arranged, and uh, this is why Abraham's looking for a city whose builder and architect is God. He's looking for something that's other, and he only sees it from afar, but he rejoices to see it because he sees the coming of Christ and the altar. So that, so that in Christ, instead of instead of Instead of the world being organized around an axis of power enforced by violence, Christ gives us the alternative in his cross, which is the axis of love expressed in forgiveness that refounds the world. But it means that suddenly we have to rethink everything that we've ever assumed about how society is to be organized. And that's, that's a very demanding call. So it's, it's hard. 
And, and you have to see, see, this is one of the problems with some of the atonement theories that want to reduce the atonement to one thing and the cross to one thing. And, and then we say, oh, you know, Jesus had to just, you know, die for our sins so that God could get the wherewithal to forgive us. I think that's a poor interpretation. But even if you wanted to say that, the problem is it's like, okay, done. I know what the cross is about, and we don't think it. The cross is many things, including where the world is refounded around an axis of love, expressing forgiveness, instead of what has been the long, long history of human civilization of organizing our societies around violence enforced by, or, or power enforced by violence. Dr. Leighton Friesen is the academic dean at Steinbeck Bible College. He's also the author of Secular Nonviolence and the Theodrama of Peace. We asked them the same question. What are some of the challenges that come when we're trying to live out this life of nonviolence? Can a person really love their enemies without having the spirit of Jesus inside of them? You know, without Pentecostal power, can a person carry out this part of Jesus's life? And I think this is why the church has had such a terribly difficult time with Jesus's teachings around, around violence. And it's really fascinating to go through church history and see all the multiple ways in which the church has sort of dodged this, has evaded this from one side or another. You look at, at the time of Constantine, you look at the, uh, at the Middle Ages when this was sort of um, allocated to the elite, you know, the, the, the monks and the nuns and the priests, those were the people who were still called to obey this. Uh, the rest of the society couldn't. Um, and I think even in our secular age where we've, we've kind of watered this down and we've reduced it to bullying or, or anti-discrimination or whatever, and we've said, you can, you can do this with some good education and some good psychology and whatever. You can become a nonviolent person. I mean, that's a reduction of Jesus' message, really. It's, it's, it's cutting off everything to do with his relationship to the Father, everything to do with the Holy Spirit, and just saying, you know, with some good moral reform, you can become a nonviolent person. And so there's all kinds of ways in which the church has, has kind of evaded the, the full, beautiful message of Jesus' teachings on nonviolence, which were very directly related to his relationship to the Father. Mm -hmm. And so I think the challenge that we have is simply uh, holding on to an ethic, holding on to uh, a way of living that often seems impossible. We can't actually understand how it's supposed to work, and yet not evading it. I think that's the temptation, is when we see something that we can't do or that we can't quite figure out how we're going to get there. It seems like too high of an ethic or it seems impossible. Uh, we, we find all kinds of ways of saying, well, Jesus couldn't have meant that or, you know, it was meant for someone else or it was meant for like the future kingdom of God or, you know, if Jesus had, if Jesus had known he was going to take 2,000 years to come back, he would have given us something more practical. I mean, these are all different ways in which the church has tried to evade this. That I don't think we can do. Uh, we need to keep this very difficult ethic in mind. We need to keep it before us, even if we can't obey it, even if it seems impossible. And that's a challenge because we, we only want commands we can obey. That's really the, 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 the gut human instinct is to say, I, if I can't reach this on my own power, then clearly we need, a, we need to get a different set of rules. Um, and that's, that's just not how this works. Uh, Jesus is a really tough fit in the kingdom of this world. And we're always going to struggle with this. But I think we have to keep struggling with it because Jesus leads us on and he, he, he empowers us bit by bit in learning how to do this by the power of the Holy Spirit.
as we discussed this, we ended up talking about John chapter 21 and the reunion of Jesus and Peter and this sort of reinstatement that Jesus does with Peter at the end of the book of John. I recognized as we were discussing that it's sort of a unique thing that Jesus does here rather than call him to a sort of traditional repentance or call him out for his betrayal earlier or talk about how he'd failed or how he needed to improve in his character. Jesus simply asks the question, Peter, do you love me? As we thought about this in the context of loving our enemies and how we can follow Jesus's call into a new sort of kingdom and ethic, this is what Leighton had to say. Jesus gives us the whole curriculum. I mean, you've got grades 1 to 12. There are some things that, that we'll, we'll be able to do fairly soon in our Christian life. There are certain things that we'll be able to do in grade 4. There are certain things that we'll do in grade 8, grade 9, 12. Maybe there's some things that we'll only learn when we get to university, right? But that's the nature of the Christian faith is that there is enough in the example and the teaching of Jesus to give us challenges right to the very end of our life. And and maybe loving our enemies is actually one of those kind of advanced things that we're going to start working on right away. It's not like it's delayed. You start working on some of this stuff, but it's only going to come later on, actually, when, when we perfect that. And, and we have seen people in our own lives and in our own churches who have done this, have done remarkable things in terms of loving their enemies. And it's, it is actually possible. But it is hard. There's no question about that. Mm -hmm. yeah. Dr. Ronald J. Sider was the founder and president emeritus of Evangelicals for Social Action and was the distinguished professor of theology, holistic ministry, and public policy at Palmer Theological Seminary. He was the author of numerous books, including The Early Church on Killing and the best-selling book Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. Dr. Sider passed away last year, but prior to his passing, we had a chance to talk to him about this topic of peace and nonviolence, and we also asked him the question, why is this teaching about nonviolence so difficult to live out? What makes this so hard? Well, I think probably at a kind of personal human level, uh, it's not instinctively what we do. We instinctively... Um, resist, fight back, uh, protect ourselves. Uh, it's not the uh, normal human emotion that comes out. Um, but beyond that, you know, you only have to take a fairly quick look through history or look at just the newspapers today, and you see that uh, bullies do awful things. Uh, Hitler and Stalin and Pol Pot and uh, and and now uh, Putin um, and in the short run, it seems um, that simply loving that enemy is not enough to stop the person from doing awful things. Um, you know, I, I started out my book, If Jesus is Lord, by saying, I get the just war tradition. Uh, you know, there are awful people in, hit, in history, uh, and um, it looks like the only way to stop them uh, is to fight them and kill. Uh, but that's where my book, Nonviolent Action, comes in. Uh, in that book, I tell story after story after story of how. Um, Christians and others 
have resisted evil nonviolently uh, and successfully. Uh, Dr. King, Gandhi, uh, the overthrow of Marcos in the Philippines, you know, again and again and again, a nonviolent stance, in fact, has been successful. And in fact, a couple of scholars did a study that was published a few years ago, and they compared uh, over 300 instances of violent and nonviolent uh, resistance to evil and uh, attempts to uh, work for justice. Uh, and they discovered that the nonviolent campaigns were about twice as likely to succeed as the violent campaigns. So there is an alternative to violence, but it's costly. Um, it is um, on the surface. It seems like it's um, not going to work. So I understand why people struggle with it. One of the things that struck me as we had the opportunity to listen to these various guests speak about this is the fact that an issue like nonviolence, an issue like learning to love our enemies, can't be something that we simply make a decision on in a moment and then it's changed for us. It's actually a part of sort of a redemptive transformational journey that we're called to go on as a church. And it's not intuitive or easy, but it is a step-by-step -step thing that we're called to grow in as we live our Christian lives. Yeah, I think that's a really helpful perspective. I mean, it's certainly been that way for me in my life. As I mentioned in our last episode, I was not always someone who embraced the pacifist position. I would have been just passionately against it at an earlier time in my life. I would have thought it was ridiculous, um, completely nonsensical. And that's actually one of the reasons why I, I actually have such an appreciation for some of Dr. Sider's work. Um, especially his book, Nonviolent Action, uh, that he referenced in this interview, because while some of it's counterintuitive, some of the stuff about um, nonviolence is, is actually effective. Like, it's, it's not that it is ineffective, it's just it doesn't feel like it will work. It feels like we're just rolling over and not doing anything. But actually, nonviolent resistance to evil is actually remarkably effective, twice as effective as violent resistance to evil. And it has been demonstrated. It has been tried. It's not that it hasn't been tried. It has been tried. It is costly, though. It does have a cost to it. And that is also demonstrated in, in his work. Um, but interestingly, when there have been nonviolent campaigns, the amount of bloodshed is actually less but it's not on both sides. It's just that it's all one-sided. But the overall bloodshed is less, but it's only on the side of those who are willing to die, but not willing to kill. Right. I think of it a little bit, let me know if this analogy lands, but but almost like uh, you think about professional athletes that have to relearn the way to do something. They work with some sort of a physical trainer or something because the natural way they want to move isn't actually the most effective way to achieve what they're looking for in a sport. And there is this sense in which we have this built-in muscle memory that we have to sort of relearn. We're sitting down with someone and we're talking when we look at scripture and the teachings of Jesus, what it's doing is teaching us a new way to live that doesn't feel natural, but just like an athlete has to figure out new ways to move their body that don't at first feel natural, but are actually going to lead to greater results. We have to relearn ways of doing things. And it's not an easy process, but it is an important one. I think that's a helpful analogy. I mean, I was 
uh, a basketball player in high school, and I remember when I had to relearn how to take a jump shot, and at first it felt really awkward to do that. But in the end, my shot improved greatly as a result of that. But that early stages, it felt completely unnatural to me to do it. But yeah, it's a helpful analogy, I think, because especially with the way the data bears out in the long run, um, while it doesn't feel natural, it is actually more effective, even though it seems counterintuitive in it. But even more than that, I think there's a piece of it, even if it wasn't effective, the question would be, God is asking this of us, and is effectiveness in a worldly sense the most important thing, or is faithfulness the most important thing? Right, I think that's important, that effectiveness isn't the ultimate metric here that we're using to determine whether this is something that we do. We're seeking to be faithful to Jesus, and that came through in the answers that we got. had the chance to connect with Dr. Terry Hebert. He is the interim president at Steinbeck Bible College. And he gave a bit of a tour through scripture, starting in the Old Testament, looking at this idea of non-violence or enemy love and how it plays out in scripture. I've been reading through the Old Testament lately uh, for the last while, and I've been getting really depressed, actually, by the amount of revenge. And you know, even, even David... Um, there's this great story of this guy who is insulting David and uh, David's men say to, say to David, so should we dispatch him for you? And he says, no, no, no. Uh, maybe he's got something to say. And then uh, this, this fellow on a later trip, David makes this trip up north and this guy actually follows David all the way up north and he's throwing stones at the entourage going north. And again, David's men say, so should we dispatch him for you? And he says, no, no, maybe he's God's voice. You know, he's, in a sense, he's, you, you think, oh, David, hey, you're loving your enemy. Um, and then at the end of David's life, um, he basically gives his final instructions. And he says, by the way, <laughs> make sure that uh, you kill this guy. Um, it's these vicious cycles of retaliation that are just so universal. And even, even a man after God's own heart um, in, in many ways, uh, falls prey to that, and so do we. Um, I'm sure the temptation is is overpowering, uh, especially when, even now, when you've got these brutal and unjust atrocities that are happening in the world today, and there's this temptation just to to say, I, we've got to do something about this and and have revenge. Um, and often, revenge takes on this kind of quasi justice kind of co uh, conversation as well, that I have to look righteous in in my revenge, right? But um, Jesus sees through that. As we continued our conversation, President Terry focused in on the Sermon on the Mount. It's interesting to note that in, in Matthew 5, verse 39, Jesus says, I say to you not to, not to retaliate by evil means or not to retaliate evil for evil. And there, in, in one translation, the whole idea there is by evil means. And it's so easy to retaliate evil using evil means. Well, if you did that to me, I mean, kids do that in, in, 
in our homes all the time. Well, they did that to me. I'm going to, I'm going to kick them too or do those kinds of things. But Jesus clearly kind of makes that added twist. You can respond to evil. And of course, Jesus believes that we should resist evil. In fact, he resisted evil in the temple. He described the Pharisees as being greedy. Um, and, and so he, he does things. He resists Satan. I mean, he, he does a lot of resisting of evil. Even his death on, on the cross is the ultimate resistance of evil. Uh, and he does so in a nonviolent way, which is a, which is about the hardest way to, to do that because there's so much injustice, so many things that, that don't make sense. You say, Jesus of all people, you should be resisting and revenging this. President Terry also recognized that it wasn't just about Jesus, that as the early church got started and writers like Paul wrestled with this, they came back to Jesus' teaching on nonviolence and expanded it. Paul says the same thing, don't repay evil for evil. Never avenge yourselves. And obviously, uh, Jesus' example wasn't quite enough for the Roman Christians. Uh, so in Romans 12, he, he has to remind them again. And he says the same things that Jesus says. Never avenge yourself. You're, if your enemy is hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. Do not overcome evil by evil. Means exactly what Jesus says, but overcome evil with good. Um, and you find that elsewhere in the New Testament as well. It's this, this resisting this vicious cycle of repaying evil with greater evil. And so then Jesus continues on and, and, and basically says, you can't just by by means of kind of force or by means of, of sure willpower say, I'm going to resist evil. Uh, there has to be a greater a greater purpose or greater value. And so uh, Stassen calls this the transforming initiative. It's like, here are some practices that if you start small, and I think that's where that's where maybe I, I've come to, I, you know what, I don't know what to do sometimes, a lot of times, with world issues and, and you know, the wars that are going around the world and, and some of the, the great violent things that are happening. Uh, but what I'm discovering, at least in my own life, is to start with small transforming practices, habits, initiatives. And that's what Stassen says that the, the, the Sermon on the Mount is all about. It's starting with patterns of manageable, small steps that you make so that if and when you do get into the, the more difficult situations or the, you know, the, the, the crisis situations, that you have practiced these ways of peace for so long, that loving your enemy, you've, you've been doing it in small ways already in the past, that here's just another way to, to creatively love that enemy. It's, it's like building up your, 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 your muscles to, to uh, respond in a way that that loving the enemy becomes a more natural way of, of responding. Nonviolence or enemy love or pacifism or peacekeeping, this is the sort of thing that has a lot of terms, and those terms carry a fair bit of baggage with them. It can actually make the discussion around these ideas a little bit complicated. As we closed out our conversation, President Terry talked a bit about the words that he chooses to use when talking about nonviolence and enemy love. I, I prefer not to use non-resistance. Right. It's, it's been a very good Anabaptist word over the years, um, and it was used a lot in previous generations, but I find that non-resistance has too much uh, misunderstanding. Um, exactly what I was saying, do not resist the evildoer. Years ago, that would have given the impression, at least, that you don't resist. You just kind of turn the other way, or you avoid, or you run away, or you do something like that. But I found that, uh, I, I liked what Stassen talks about, he says, it's do not resist the evildoer by evil means. And so that resistance is still something we need to do. 
we should be resisting evil, put on the full armor of God, all that kind of stuff. But it's, uh, it's not what evil means. What I really valued about that discussion with President Terry is the opportunity that we had to sort of take a step back and view this thing scripturally from 30,000 feet and understand how nonviolence and enemy love isn't something that takes place in a couple of isolated verses. Rather, it is a part of the story of what God is doing in the world from Genesis through to Revelation and in the Gospels, in the Epistles, in the Prophets. We see this echoed throughout the entire narrative of Scripture. And that's so significant to understand. It's a big part of what God is doing in the world. One of the things I appreciated about his insights was was that note near the end about non-resistance in that term in particular. Because it always bothered me where people would say, you know, don't resist an evil person, or in some translations of the of the Bible where it would say it in those terms, but where he distinguishes that, you know, Jesus actually did resist evil, and we're supposed to resist evil, but we don't resist evil by evil means. And, and that there's a certain amount of understanding that goes into that, and, and having a proper uh, both translation of the scriptures uh, to, to get to that place. Um, that, that was something I used to wrestle with. And so in him explaining that, it was just one of those um, touchy places for me that took me a very long time to get to that place of, of understanding that um, when, when we say non-resistance, it's, uh, it's not that we don't resist evil, it's that we don't resist evil by evil means. And, and for me, that, that's something I, I just really appreciated about what he said. Right, this picture of the cross, not as a passive thing, but actually the ultimate resistance of evil in laying down your life in that way. Our feature song today is by a group called Poor Bishop Hooper, and they are a group that has been singing through the Psalms. And so this is their song, Psalm 37. Some of the lyrics at the beginning of the song say, If I delight in you, it is your promise. My every heart's desire will be accomplished. If I commit all I have to you, your justice will shine. Your justice will shine. If I stay within your holy presence, no matter what the world has, I wait patient. If I commit all I have to you, I know you'll delight. I know you'll delight. I just really appreciate uh, the the lyrics, which are based on Psalm 37, and how it's this reminder that we delight ourselves in the Lord, we stay close to the Lord, and in this discussion about um, peace, about nonviolence, that that's really what matters, is seeking faithfulness to the Lord above all, above what is expedient in an earthly sense, you know, and that if we are seeking the Lord first and foremost, that we can trust that the Lord's going to work things out in the end and that we are committing whatever we have to him, our behavior, our lives, our well-being, and that if we are staying with him, that everything's going to be all right in the end. And so this is a song um, by poor Bishop Hooper, Psalm 37. If I delight in you, it is your promise. My every heart's desire will be accomplished If I commit all I have to you Your justice will shine Your justice will shine If I stay still within your holy presence No matter what the world has, I wait patient if I commit 
All I have to you, I know you'll delight. I know you'll delight. And my inheritance will be perfect and unending. My inheritance will be beneath your watchful eye. There's nothing that can shake it. No hour can decay it forever, forever and a day. If my steps are taken and established, and you are pleased with everywhere I put them, though I fall, I won't be overwhelmed, for you hold my hand. You hold my hand And my inheritance will be Perfect and unending My inheritance will be Beneath your watchful eye There's nothing that can take it No hour can decay it My inheritance will be Perfect and unending My inheritance will be Beneath your watchful eye There's nothing that can take it No hour can decay it Forever, forever, forever Once I was young And now I am an old man Ne'er have I seen A righteous one forsaken For my children Never begged for bread But gave and gave again Gave and gave again Gave and gave again the Armchair Anabaptist is a Theodidactos podcast, and Theodidactos is a publication of the Evangelical Mennonite Conference. You can check us out online at www.thearmchairanabaptist.ca and find us on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever podcasts are found. A special thanks to our guests who have joined us today, Betty Priest, Brian Zond, Dr. Terry Hebert, and Dr. Leighton Friesen. We were also honored to be able to interview Dr. Ronald J. Sider in April of 2022, just a few months before his passing, and what you heard of him today was from that interview. Our intro song is First Communion by Dane Jones-Hill, and our feature song today was the song Psalm 37 by Poor Bishop Hooper. Our executive producer is Erica Fair. Our producer and audio engineer is Kevin Weeb, and our administrative assistant and wizard of all things web-related is Ruth Block. I'm Kevin Weeb. And I'm Jesse Penner, and we have been your hosts for the Armchair Anabaptist. We certainly hope that what you have heard today will do more than stay as merely food for thought, but that it can help inspire each of us to get up out of the comfort of our armchairs and translate into living more like Jesus. Join us next time as we continue our journey looking at the life of peace and what Jesus said this all had to do with being children of God. Mm -hmm.